0: Welcome to episode 227 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And today I'm joined by our guest interviewee, Bobby Chesney, who's a law professor at the University of Texas School of Law, who co hosts the National Security Law Podcast, where he does uh, battle every uh, it's a very civil battle, but battle nonetheless. Uh, uh, every week with uh, Steve Vladek, also of UT, uh, uh and uh, a founder of Lawfare. Uh, Bobby,
1: welcome. Thanks, great to be on the show.
0: Yep, we're going to be talking about deep fakes with Bobby and maybe a little also uh, the FISA document dump that came out over the weekend. Uh, uh, in other other participants include Maury Shank, who's a lawyer and advisor on European technology and cybersecurity issues in London. Uh, Nick Weaver, a, a perennial favorite, teaching at UC Berkeley. Uh, welcome, Nick. Thank you. And Pat Kennedy, uh, who's a Steptoe summer associate uh, in our Washington office. Pat, welcome. Good to be here. Okay, and I'm Stuart Baker, back from the wilderness, uh, more or less in uh, uh, one piece, uh, formerly with NSA and DHS and hosting today's podcast. Uh, Maury, I want to start out talking about what was certainly the biggest dollar news of the week, which is the $5 billion plus um, fine that the European Union imposed on Google for it's um, uh, abuse of a dominant position in the Android operating system. Um, it, we got some comments from people on Twitter. Uh, uh, the president, of course, uh, tweeted uh, that he thought that this was uh, evidence of uh, uh, Europe trying to take advantage of the United States uh, and uh, that uh, it needed to stop. Uh, and a couple of other uh, uh, people, Saad Ghul, uh, said, well, really, maybe that's not such Such a good analysis, considering this looks a lot like the Microsoft case. Uh, uh, And uh, uh, chain security uh, weighed in to say it's kind of ironic that President Trump is defending Google. Uh, uh, So this has gotten a lot of commentary, maybe not so much deep law, probably because as far as I can see, the European Union's legal analysis so far consists of a two-page press release. Um, But Maury, did you dig into this in any detail?
2: I think we're all waiting to hear more. uh, But the basic analysis does indeed seem very similar to what the Europeans did with Microsoft, where it was about uh, bundling Explorer with Microsoft Windows. Here, it's about bundling Chrome and the Google search app with Google Play. One feels that In this case, like the Microsoft case, the commission's a little bit behind the market, which is already the market tends to discipline um, these kind of monopolies as it did for Microsoft. You know, whether you think they're after the U.S., I think it depends upon where you sit. If you're Google, maybe if you're President Trump or, dare I say, Stuart Baker, you tend to have that reaction. Um, Google's competitors like this, though, many U.S. competitors. And frankly, there aren't that many big EU technology companies to go after about this.
0: Well, that's certainly true. It's uh, it, um, if, if the EU was trying to help European technology companies, they'd have to have some first. Uh, and uh, increasingly, they don't. But I, like you, I, this feels like nostalgia for the Microsoft case um, and misplaced nostalgia at that uh, um, in the microsoft case you really couldn't as a practical matter use a pc without uh, the operating system microsoft supplied and uh, yet uh, the eu says Oh, yeah, those, there's that Apple thing. Well, but that's com- completely irrelevant. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it. It has nothing to do with market share uh, or dominance. Um, we're going to define this case as a case in which uh, uh, you are monopolizing the Android's operating system and other operating systems for phones that don't integrate the phone and the operating system, therefore, putting. Apple outside of the uh, the relevant market. That struck me as artificial in the extreme.
2: Yeah, I, I think so. Um, although um, on the, the FTC um, looked at conduct like this from Google in 2012 during the Obama administration and had similar concerns about this. Google does have a very big market share in the search market and um, and, um, you know, a lot of the competitors are concerned. Um, there are other ways that people are, you know, Facebook is starting to play a big role for search and who's th- this all may look very outdated at risk of repeating myself a few years down the road.
0: Yeah, uh, that that would be my guess, too. Uh, although five billion dollars is that's a lot on the top of the 2 billion they hit uh, Google with for uh, – what was it? Privacy last time, right? Uh, 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 Yeah, well – Go ahead. We'll see. Google will be appealing for sure. Well, that's right. Uh, And uh, uh, this fine is basically – for having contested the EU's initial uh, judgment. Uh, they're Basically, uh, the the European Commission is saying, you should have done it when we told you we thought it was a violation. You should have fixed it then. Because you didn't, we're gonna charge you $5 billion, uh, uh, which is not exactly due process.
2: Well, you know, this is one of the areas where the EU, I think, is learning from the US with big fines. We've done it in areas like sanctions, and as we'll be talking about later in the podcast, ZTE was another case where big penalties is um, was US practice. And I think the Europeans have taken a leaf out of our book.
0: I, I, I think that's entirely true. The question then is, if you were President Trump, uh, I realize this is going to be a bit of a strain on your imagination. But if you were President Trump, and you really didn't like this, what would you do to prevent uh, uh, Europe from uh, enthusiastically embracing this kind of fine-based regulation of U.S. companies in the future?
2: Well, well I, I don't think President Trump's criticism of it as being improper targeting of U.S. companies is is the wrong way to go. I mean, whether or not you agree with it, if you're trying, if, uh, if you want to defend Google, and our commenter from Chain Security said that seems a little strange for Trump to do it, but if, if you want to defend Google, I think he probably took a reasonable tack.
0: Well, so the criti- – that, but that's just naming and shaming. It's not actually doing anything. Uh, um, uh, so he's going to have to find something – other than just uh, tweeting to uh, deter the European Union from this. I'm not sure well, what there is. Well, he does seem reticence about uh, trade action, so I'm sure
2: he can think of something if he wants to do that.
0: All right. Well, that, maybe that's it. It will get uh, rolled into the uh, negotiations over uh, automobile tariffs and the like. Okay. Um, so – one of the other things that happened this week uh, – actually, it happened at Aspen, and I was uh, there for it uh, – was uh, Rod Rosenstein uh, announced the results of the Cyber Digital Task Force at the Justice Department. Um, Pat, um, what would you say was the most significant part of that uh, in endless report? It's probably 150 pages.
3: Absolutely. So I, I think the entire first chapter sort of deals with the most pressing issue and something that's been on our TVs for um, a long time now. Um, but basically, the it's entitled the um, countering foreign influence operations. But basically, it boils down to Russia interfering um, in the elections and how to prevent this in the future. So so that's basically the uh, the whole first part of the report and, and the most important part. I think
0: the, I, the rest of it struck me as um, predictable Justice Department worries about technology, encryption and the like. Uh, right. uh, so the news, the new policy is the Russia election interference stuff. Uh, and if I'm reading this right, what really is new here is a, uh, a policy about when the Justice Department will out foreign nations for interference uh, and and uh, some of the stuff is pretty obvious uh, and, and would have happened anyway. When we have to make an arrest, we have to explain wh- why we're arresting these people and we'll uh, uh, name Russian uh, – the r- name foreign governments if that happens. I thought the most interesting one uh, on the list uh, – well, first – They go out of their way to say we want to do this in a way that will not interfere with what will not be perceived as partisan um, which is why we're setting limits around when we will and won't um, uh, talk about uh, who's doing this Uh, but they seem to suggest it's a little unclear that they're going to go to the tech companies, especially social media platforms, Google, Facebook, uh, Twitter, and tell them when they think they see some interference by foreign governments. And I got the sense they were probably going to tell them uh, quietly and not publicly and give them information that they weren't giving to the rest of the public so that uh, Facebook and Google and uh, Twitter could go uh, push the bots and the fake profiles out of their platforms.
3: Right. Uh, that, that is absolutely what it looks like. I and mean, they have a whole bullet about um, alerting technology companies when they believe there's been some interference. Um, I, I didn't see this maybe as, as groundbreaking, um, especially later they talk about um, the the things that they've been doing all along, so the private industry notifications, the FBI um, liaison alert system that are targeted already at private companies. Um, so, so to me, this is sort of status quo. But I, I think it's
0: it it implies a level of cooperation in trying to make sure that. Uh, Uh, The private efforts to keep foreign governments out of election uh, issues are reinforced by what the Justice Department is seeing through intelligence and law enforcement discovery. Uh, Yeah, I I, I don't see it, anything really groundbreaking here other than that they now have a policy uh, and presumably these will be the Rosenstein principles for the next uh, 15 years when people ask uh, who can we talk to about this apparent uh, government interference. Uh, um, so I, I, the one question I have for the Justice Department is if they're going to tell social media platforms Uh, We think there are some Russian bots or Russian actors. Uh, uh, The expectation presumably is that the the social media platforms are going to take that down, kick those guys out. uh, And that's great as long as they aren't kicking out actual Americans. Uh, And I don't have a lot of confidence that social media is going to – be even-handed in the way they apply their policies because they have such a bad record of being even-handed in U.S. politics already. Um, And so one question would be if the Justice Department is going to provide privileged access to this information, maybe they should say to the social media platforms, we want to see how you're using this. We want to make sure that you are actually using this in the even-handed way in which we're providing it to you
3: right this doesn't go as far as to say as to constrict the companies themselves um, to follow sort of the same partisan or nonpartisan behavior um,
0: yeah but- it, it doesn't uh, and you know th- this is tricky because you can't tell um, private citizens what to say in this country uh, on the other hand uh, if you're going to give them something that you don't give the rest of the public it's not unfair to ask how they're using it okay so Nick I'm gonna ask you a question because i genuinely don't know the answer right uh, but i it feels serious uh we've seen over the past six months or a year uh increasing number of hacks that are aimed at the deep structure of uh intel and and other amd uh, arm chips uh which have gotten a lot of value a lot of speed out of doing speculative execution, which is basically saying, I don't know if you're going to actually need this, but I'm going to start on it anyway, because I've got extra uh, 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 pieces of my uh, 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 silicon that aren't being used. Um, And there's been a recent announcement that suggests that all of the fixes that people are trying to implement for... Uh, those kinds of attacks are starting to fail. Uh, And I wonder if you could tell us, is that really true and how bad is it? It's sort of true. So these are
4: all side channel attacks. So what happens is two programs running on the same computer, one tries to figure out some secret from the other. And what it comes down to is switching between programs. We keep trying to make it cheaper and cheaper because we do that a lot. But it doesn't interact well with the speculative execution features. And so what you need to do is just do expensive operations every time you switch uh, programs. And program can be things like a web page itself. And so we've seen this with Chrome. Chrome now actually has a really robust set of defenses that they just rolled out. And what it involves is really running every single web domain as a separate program and using these very heavyweight operations. And it's part of the reason why Chrome takes up so much CPU, but you have to in order to get this isolation. That What we've come to the conclusion is that any sort of cache, any sort of history, any sort of speculation cannot cross programs. And so this means that every time you switch programs, you've got to empty out all your caches, all these little hidden caches like the branch buffer and everything else. And so for normal people, it's basically run Chrome and accept that your performance is going to go down for a little bit. But for us uh, computer geeks, it's really fun to watch us tap dance madly on the lip of the volcano.
0: Okay, well, I, so uh, you're predicting that we'll be tap dancing there a long time, and there'll be at least occasional eruptions.
4: Oh yeah, uh, I think it's basically fissure eight at uh, Kilauea right now.
0: Oh great, okay, all right. So I uh, we'll watch this this space, and this looks like a big challenge for chip makers. Uh, in particular uh as some of the tools they've used to boost performance uh suddenly look as though they have to be cured by uh reducing performance yep okay um let me ask you about a different topic uh, the uh, uh house and senate have been negotiating with the trump administration over what to do with ZTE as 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 you all remember ZTE uh, uh had persuaded uh, President Trump, that it ought to be allowed back into business if it paid a big enough fine, a billion dollars plus something, uh, and uh, fired its board, fired some of its management, uh, reorganized uh, its operations. Uh, the purpose of that all was uh, designed by the Commerce Department in response to a an export control violation where the company... Seem to have been deliberately flouting U.S. Uh, controls to sell U.S. equipment into uh, proscribed countries like Iran and North Korea. Uh, the Commerce Department came down hard on them, and it looked like it might put them out of business. Uh, they they said well, you can't ever sell U.S. company, or you can't sell for the next five years U.S. equipment, and that meant they were just done. Um, President said no, let them pay the fine. Uh, undertake some of these other constraints, uh, and uh, they can stay in business, they can keep selling U.S. products, which, of course, was good for the U.S. products as well. Um, Congress had had said bravely it was going to overturn that uh, compromise. Uh, it looks as though Congress is not going to overturn that compromise, but um, what Congress is going to do is they're going to say, "If you do business with the United States, we don't want you to use ZTE or Huawei for that matter uh, equipment uh, so it was they're going to regulate uh, telecos big telcos indirectly Um a, looks like a pretty substantial climb down for the people who said, no, we're, we're going to uh, get tough with ZTE. I don't know what uh, you're thinking about what the final impact of this will be.
4: Well, there's two things. There's the sales to ZTE. And I think the resolution is good that I'm in the camp of let's sell to them all they want to buy from us. Um, the problem is, is this was The the sales to ZTE part was just totally blatant political grandstanding. And in fact, it actually, the Senate language wasn't actually going to undo the death sentence. All it would do is force Trump to basically sign a statement saying ZTE has behaved in the past year, and they have in the past year. Um, But we also know how well Trump likes signing certifications, even when they're true. Um, as for the supply chain, that's essential, and I think it's perfectly reasonable for the U.S. government to use its market power and say, uh, if you want to sell to us, don't include this stuff.
0: All right. Well, it, it's going to be uh, – it, 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 this This debate is not over, is my prediction. Uh, um, I, I want to talk – Bobby, I want to talk about FISA, but uh, let, let's do two quick stories first. Uh, um, uh, Mori, the EU and Japan have mutually agreed uh, that uh, each other's data protection law is adequate. This is uh, strikes me a pretty big deal because it means that uh, – uh, Data can move between the EU and Japan quite freely uh, uh, and uh, the real question will be whether Japan's law gets challenged in the European Court of Justice the way US law has been challenged in the past and probably in the future.
2: Yeah, I think it's a pretty big deal. I mean, the, the number of countries that have this kind of deal with the EU is pretty short. The number of big countries is even shorter. It's Canada, I think Argentina. Um, and, um, you know, I, it's a broader deal than the U S has on the privacy shield, which is a smaller version of the same thing. And, but I think less likely to be challenged because Japan, I think has a more of a national consensus on data protection than there is in the U S and the Europeans are more likely to be happy about Japanese law than they are about U S law.
0: Yeah, that's probably right. Uh, Nick, I saw that finally all 50 states that um, were offered funding to improve the security of their election systems have finally taken the money. Uh, uh, Does that mean we can relax?
4: No. no. Um, I'm really worried about the election in 2018, especially voter registration systems, that if I was Russia, I would take every contested House seat, get all the most Republican-leaning precincts and just randomly register about 10% of the voters, that the chaos would be um, horrifically spectacular, throwing the entire election's legitimacy into doubt. Um, if I was an election official right now, I would be really worried.
0: I, I think you're right that, that they could do stuff like that. Um, it, it, it's also possible to come up with mechanisms for... Uh, avoid for at least countering that. Uh, You can have provisional ballots. Ten percent of the electorate casting provisional ballots would be really painful. Uh, But it certainly is doable if the state officials who are responsible for the election actually do their job. And and that's really the question. They took the money. The question now is if they can do the planning that they need to do to, to make sure stuff like this doesn't in the end have an effect on the vote agreed all right bobby uh the um fisa document dump it's basically three or four uh applications. Uh, maybe the first we've ever seen uh, applications for a FISA um, wiretap aimed at Carter Page, who was at least briefly associated with the Trump campaign uh, and who, um, according to the documents, uh, was believed by the Justice Department to be uh, acting as an uh, agent of the Russian government. Did you look those over? Uh, And if so, what... uh, would what conclusions would you draw from them
1: i did look at him and, and Stuart, i gotta say uh you know i'm used to sparring every week on on national security law podcast with with steve who comes at me from the left so i'm counting on you to play that same role here okay?
0: <laughs> I, I don't don't count on it <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah so i looked at it look uh, as you say there's Maybe the most remarkable thing about this is the very fact that we're reading FISA affidavits, FISA Title I applications are, you know, normally never see the light of day. Um, as I understand it, uh, these were forced to be disclosed by court order through FOIA litigation uh, that basically was premised on the idea that the Nunes memo, the Hipsey majority memo, had made sufficient disclosures to uh, prevent the government from being able to withhold this stuff. So uh, the government resisted and resisted, but finally it was the end of the period for disclosing it, so they produced it. And uh, naturally, everyone's focused on the the political context for all of it. That's the the nature of the story, unfortunately. Um, I think that the most important takeaway from my perspective is something that doesn't surprise me at all, and that is that the attempt by uh, the the HIPSE majority report from Nunes – uh, to make it seem as if the FBI had effectively defrauded the court by not disclosing that one of their primary sources, the, the Steele, the Christopher Steele information, uh, was a bunch of opposition research paid for by the Democrats. Um, we already knew from the Hipsy minority response to the Nunes report that probably there was some disclosure. There was a reference to it being in a footnote. Now you can see in the document that there's ex- there's pretty extensive disclosure. Maybe not quite as robust as, as it it ought to been in an excess of caution, but it's pretty clearly disclosed, and so that's confirmed. And it, it's a it's a pretty big black mark on the Hipsey majority r- report. Uh, but there's other stuff. Um, there's there's a lot of kerfuffle out there about the fact that uh, there are a couple of references to some Yahoo a Yahoo news article uh, where the source for the news article was also Christopher Steele and uh, if you look on you know pages 22 and 23 of the first FIsa application in this batch of documents you'll you'll see in the unred- unredacted portions some of what was going on there and there's no question that There is a footnote that references back to source number one, but it's not clear in the text, I think. It's not sufficiently clear in the text, source number one, and the source in the article... Are, are one and the same. So that's something that, that should have been done clear. That said, there's a big chunk of redaction where maybe there was such disclosure. And that's the problem with trying to draw conclusions from this entire document. I mean, there are huge swaths of redaction. We don't know what other stuff was put forward by the FBI to build their probable cause case. Clearly, the steel dossier is a big part of it, but there may well have been a lot of other stuff. And you just can't tell.
0: Yeah, I... I, I... As far as its implications for Nunes, uh, uh, I agree with you. The Ysikov-Yahoo uh, News thing is a little ambiguous. I I have to say I think the mainstream press has been doing a sack dance over Nunes saying uh, this shows that his um, presentation wasn't accurate. It's not that it wasn't accurate. It's that it was – Uh, lawyerly in maybe the uh, not entirely reputable sense of that word. Uh, Everything he said was true. It might have left impressions that uh, weren't true, uh, which were corrected by the reply brief of the uh, uh, Democrats on the committee. Uh, But I, I didn't see anything in here where you could say this shows that what Nunes says wasn't true. It's just that the impression he left might have been overdone.
1: I guess it boils down to the intent. I think the intent of the impression he left was very much to make it seem the FBI was engaged in your proverbial witch hunt, etc. And, and it, I just don't think the facts bear it out. But I guess the real problem, the larger public policy problem, is that we count on the Senate and House um, committees on intelligence to be these proxies for the public, overseeing the intelligence community. And in order for that to work at all, there does need to be some degree of trust that they're carrying it out in a, in a nonpartisan way. And once we're into a conversation about how the majority has got a report and then there's a litigation like reply and, and there's sort of these two efforts to spin things, um, I think Kipsey's in tons of trouble. And the contrast with the Senate Select Committee, which is, I think, behaved itself quite admirable, admirably, is, uh, is quite striking.
0: Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I, I guess I will say one thing that bothered me about this, or oh, a couple of things. One, the amount of reliance on ordinary press reports, quite striking. Uh, how often they just said, well, this is what is in the media. Uh, and, they, you know, it's it's hard. They can't ignore that, uh, but they can't be absolutely sure it's true, and they certainly can't be true to be sure it isn't spun um uh, every one of these for for a period of about a year included that story about how the um Demo- uh, the republican platform was changed to be more russia friendly um as a result of the in- uh, intervention of Trump uh, uh, forces, which is a story that's highly contested uh, uh, and probably wrong. Uh, it, 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 there's there were there were some changes, but there were changes to somebody else's proposed amendment, and they were modest and ambiguous. Uh, I just uh, uh, what I find striking is that having run that report, they never corrected it. They never said that it's been contested in any way. Um, a, and since the question, you know, that was only in there to show that uh, maybe Russian efforts to influence the Trump campaign were succeeding, um, the fact that maybe it turned out not to be true should have been part of later uh, uh, submissions to the court.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. I, I would say that that's probably – if, if there's a weakest spot, that may well be it right there. I also think it's, it's a very tiny piece of the much larger puzzle, even if we don't account for all the redacted stuff. Yes. One of the things that's sort of striking, because we get this, it's a set of four total applications. So you've got the original and three renewals. And, and they grow by leaps and bounds as the, as time passes. Now, who knows what that reflects? It's all redacted. We don't know. But it's a, I think a reasonably safe inference that what's going on is that, uh, once the tap is in place and they're collecting on him, they're getting stuff that they think is relevant enough to put into the next round of renewal application. Um, and it's, my surmise that you know by the time you're you're a year into this, uh, whatever influence that initial reliance on the news story for whatever marginal impact it may have had is pretty well drowned out. I suspect. I, I think that's.
0: I think you. I think you're right. Uh, uh, you can't tell much because what he says on the phone uh, uh, when he's being tapped is is an increasing piece of this. I, I I I do also have this feeling that if this had been a proposal to wiretap. Um, the ACLU as opposed to the uh, uh, – or somebody who was active in the ACLU as opposed to somebody who was active uh, uh, in the Republican Party. I think uh, alarms would have gone off at the top of the uh, political uh, elements of the intelligence community, and they would have pressed questions like, is there any bias in that um, article or uh, really uh, you're right they disclosed that the uh, th- that the FBI speculated that there was a partisan motive for the um, information being collected but they were not exactly uh pushing that forward so that the court understood just how much risk there was that they were being utilized in a partisan fashion uh and I I, I think it's a it's a blind spot on the part of uh, Obama Justice Department and intelligence community leadership not to have really said, "God, this this could be very bad if we're in, if if we're asking the court to do something that could be later portrayed as partisan, um, and we need to scrub and disclose anything that might suggest a partisan motivation." And that just does not seem to have occurred to them. They they just let the process grind out in its usual way, and it produced that footnote in which you have to already know the facts to understand it. uh, Nobody who read that without understanding what was going on already would understand all of the identified persons and the uh, uh, speculation and the like. Uh, uh, You only get a kind of vague impression. You don't get the sense that this was research paid for by the other party.
1: Hey, maybe this is the much improved version. Maybe there was an earlier draft that, uh, that wasn't as cautious as this. Could be.
0: Could be. Oh, well, Steve Vladek, we missed you. Uh, We know you're listening and we know it's just driving you crazy not to be able to respond. Uh, I will come on the uh, National Security Podcast uh, uh, sometime and you can have at me. Uh, All right. Oh, that is so true. (laughs) All right. Uh, uh, Well, let's move right into our interview uh, and talk to you about deep fakes. You've got a great paper uh, very thoughtful a um, little too lawy from my taste but uh, uh, you wrote it with Danielle Citrone it's on deep fakes um, I of course uh, was attracted to this topic because uh, traditionally uh, uh, we try to find any element of sex that might be tr- associated with national security <laughs> law and or cyber law and we've've we've, we've, we've discovered that deep fakes which are, were originally people putting famous faces on folks engaged in a variety of porn activities uh, uh, for, you know, I didn't even know this was a thing, but apparently people like to see famous people uh, uh, going at it. Uh, uh, And that has led you to a much more thoughtful uh, uh, discussion of what deepfake technology might mean more broadly. So why don't you tell us in a couple of minutes what the basic, uh, theme of the paper
1: is great happy to do it you know th- so as you said this is co-authored with danielle citron from university of maryland who's just amazing and i'm sorry she wasn't able to join us for the call um but it very much reflects uh both her ideas and mind danielle comes from a, a, a privacy perspective and a lot of her work is focused on the impact of technology on women online in particular harmful impacts in, in a variety of respects. And then, of course, I come at things from a national security perspective. And at some point um, back in the winter, we were comparing notes on disruptive technology trends and what they meant in our two areas. And, and we saw the intersection here with deepfake technology. So let me let me explain what we do in the paper. And by the way, for listeners who actually want to read the paper, it's easy to find. If you search, if you Google for SSRN deepfake fake You'll find it. SSRN is an acronym for a, a paper repository, and, and it really, is, it, it, and we it, it it comments. may
0: be the second most loathsome uh, uh, paper repository on the web. It's just almost impossible to to use easily. Yeah, uh, it really
1: that, is a pain. Isn't yes, it um, it's, it's unbelievable. If you go there, don't be de- don't be deterred by by Stewart's very fair description. Uh, there's a there's an orange button for download paper, and you can you can get it for free there. Um, so we make a set of claims. We make three sets of claims. First. Uh, a pretty, I think, non-controversial descriptive claim. We we simply describe the, the disruptive technology at issue here: altering audio or video content digitally to advance a lie, to create, to make a fake appearance that someone said or did something they never said or did. And more specifically, since that capacity in general has been around a long time. Uh, We talk about how there have been specific recent advances to make this possible to do in a much more persuasive and compelling and harder to detect kind of way. Okay, so that's the first claim. Second claim is uh, a set of predictions. We predict, first of all, that this capacity, both the the lower end and the higher end capacity to make deep fakes, is going to diffuse rapidly. And then we predict that this use. There will be some beneficial uses, yes, some artistic and political expression, for example, uh, but there will be this whole slew of harmful uses. And that's the heart of the paper, where we provide sort of a a rogues gallery, a parade of horribles of things that might happen at the individual, organizational, and societal, indeed, international relations level in, in harmful ways. So you've got harms to democracy, to national security, international relations, but also Exploitation and abuse of individuals, uh, sabotage of business rivals, sabotage of personal rivals, rivals, uh, the whole thing. Um, some of this depends on the magnifying and distorting effect of social and broadcast media, but not all of it does. Some of the, some of the worst harms we anticipate will involve very private and discreet, targeted distribution of a fake, um, and then others will depend on the social media magnifying lens and cognitive biases and the way people pass around information that's not reliable. So then, those are our first two claims. Our third and last claim is is uh, really a survey of the various tools from technology, law, uh, behavioral or business innovations that might be brought to bear or in some cases we predict will be brought to bear to mitigate some of these harms as they start to emerge. And we conclude on a pretty negative note that there's no silver bullet solution. Um, we, we have some ideas about things we think could be done, some things we think will be done that we're not sure should be done. And we leave it all there to start a conversation.
0: All right. Well, let's start the conversation with a confession. Uh, I uh, almost moved this entire field of technology forward by about four or five years uh, uh, because when I was in government – about 10 years ago now um if you remember uh bin laden was releasing these videos from time to time inspiring the troops Uh, was very low uh, tech compared to what isis was able to do but it was a big problem Uh, and uh we didn't have a good way to stop it or counter it um and i tried to get my staff to agree that we should offer a $50,000 prize for people who could uh, send us Bin Laden videos um, and that we would give a, 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 the $50,000 to the most persuasive one. Uh, and the way that we would know it was a fake is that three quarters of the way through, he needed to use the word kumquat. <laughs> uh <laughs>
1: <laughs> did you get any good one
0: my staff persuaded me that that was maybe not the best idea uh, and probably it wasn't because then <laughs> I would I would own all these deep fakes uh, it would be my policy decision that brought it on them uh, and so uh, uh, we're uh, uh, you know I at least survived uh, with my reputation such as it is intact uh, uh, but it was clear even then that there were going to be opportunities to do this and um, and that there would be if we could do it in certain circumstances, it would be great for us. Uh, And uh, in many other circumstances, it would be really bad for us. Uh, So I I agree with you completely. Um, Nobody is going to uh, uh, feel sorry for bin Laden if he ends up uh, looking like a a kumquat fan. Um, uh, But it's easy to imagine this being used by foreign governments in ways that are devastating to uh, um, the U.S. politically and uh, in terms of international reputation. Um, so that takes us, I think, pretty quickly to the question of what should we do about it. And you're right. Your uh, your list of ideas for what to do about it, especially the law ones, strike me as um, – you know, working pretty hard to drag law in. Uh, uh, The real problem with bringing law into it is we aren't going to know who did it. Uh, And if we don't know who did it, it's kind of hard to bring legal consequences.
1: No, that's right. I think that... uh one thing that's important to emphasize is it's not like some of the most malicious uses would be legal uses as things currently stand. I mean, there's all sorts of state common law torts, you know, oh, yeah. intentional I, infliction of emotional distress, and all sorts of a, all sorts of ways to police this. And the real challenge at if who you want to target and suppress is the creator of a really malicious and harmful deep fake. Um, you've got the tools, you just aren't likely to catch that person. I mean, in some cases you will. It'll be possible, just as it is now. But, um, for some of the things that we really want to be concerned with when, you know, the things that are of interest to you and I, Stuart, like national security concerns, the way that you might deploy this for covert action purposes if you're hostile to the United States, um, state tour law is probably not the tool that you need to turn to. Now, as you point out, this stuff's been around for a while. I want to emphasize what's different now because i imagine some listeners are thinking hey I, photoshop's been around forever alteration of image and audio that's nothing new just get an impersonator etc uh, so perhaps a quick word on uh, the technology advance underlying all this and it has to do with the application of deep learning techniques to existing ideas about using neural network uh pattern recognition algorithms what it boils down to is uh Increases in computing power and in the algorithms associated with neural network processing have both created a a much more robust capacity to create a neural network that can sort data and produce coherent patterns and then reproduce and then alter and reproduce those patterns. And then, best of all, or, or worst of all, depending on your perspective on this, the idea of pitting two of these against one another so that they just iterate rapidly back and forth with one creating uh, an image or, or video or a sound, and the other attempting detect, to detect it and then going another round to improve from there. So they call that generative adversarial network or GAN uh, methods. That's a 2014 paper from Ian Goodfellow and others that pioneered this idea. And a ton of academics and private sector entities have taken this and they're running with it and making pretty rapid strides in, in creating a, a high-end, um, very difficult-to-detect very persuasive-looking set of fakes that's beginning to match what previously you have to go to a Hollywood studio to to achieve.
0: So it, it, it makes perfect sense. It's evolutionary in a sense. You 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 uh, ask, you create the fake, and then you say, um, let's use the, our most sophisticated techniques techniques to find the, whether it's fake. If we find it's fake, then it's up to the um, uh, program that created it to. Find a way to fuzz all of the telltale clues, uh, and then you send your uh, attacker back in to try to figure out uh, whether it's a fake and how to prove it. And each time, uh, the ability to identify the fake gets depends on you know fewer and more tenuous handholds on the on the topic.
1: Exactly, and and even though obviously most of us can't deploy the the gan regenerative adversarial network approach yet, uh, we argue in the paper this is going to diffuse, and and it will diffuse. It'll diffuse pretty rapidly, and over time, there'll be a spectrum of tools out there that people can get their hands on to try to use this stuff, and and people you could hire to do it for you. Some of it will be better than others, but at the high end, it'll be difficult to detect.
0: So let's talk about what could be done. I I thought there were two interesting approaches uh, that you uh, touched on. One is uh, reputable sources will begin to say, this is from me. And you can tell because I've, at the end of the video, I've hashed the video and signed it with my private key. And therefore, you can be sure, as long as you want to look up my public key, you can be sure that this is the product of my studio, my camera
1: yeah you can guard against somebody sort of usurping your brand sort of the the Louis Vuitton problem if you will uh with that sort of thing because if you're a sufficiently well-resourced uh generator of content whether it's a you know a national political campaign or somebody in business um you can do just what you said and create sort of indicia of digital provenance that are pretty reliable and there's this whole booming industry by the way of people uh creating private sector solutions to mark digital provenance in various ways, yeah. digital watermarking, metadata, that sort of thing.
0: And, and it's, that's, what, that's what bin Laden would have done if I'd uh, uh, gotten my grant out uh, because he could have just used a private key and started signing his videos if he'd thought of it in time. Um, it, so if you're a source who's afraid of being spoofed, you can do this. Um, uh, but of course – the it, you, you can't go online these days without finding a video that was made by some ordinary person uh, who happened to be in the right place at the right time uh, and just put right. their phone up. Uh, and those folks aren't a brand, but we certainly don't want to be fooled by fake videos that purport to be individuals. Uh, in, in those circumstances, though, isn't there a, a substantial uh, incentive for the camera makers to also um, start hashing and watermarking and otherwise signing the product of a particular camera?
1: So there, there is, but we have a what I'm describing as a VHS versus Betamax uh, problem here, right? There's going to be a lot of different solutions uh, and a lot of of platforms. Cameras are on all sorts of devices. Now, obviously, we would consider uh, iPhones and, and the like to be the primary devices of concern. But if we really want to get our arms around this problem such that you would consider it unreliable to see a video or an, or an image that doesn't have the digital watermark of choice, whatever it may be, um, you're going to have to get your hands around a lot of different devices, a lot of different ways of capturing that content. And it seems unlikely to me, as things currently stand, that any time in the near future, we are going to have the kind of uniformity of uptake of the technology. It just, let's stipulate that the technology is even there already, that we'll have the kind of uniformity of uptake that would enable us to really immediately doubt things that don't come with that watermark already. Maybe we'll get there, then we'll have the sort of the variety problem. Um, I'm a little skeptical, though, that we're going to solve that one anytime soon. The the interesting question is, well, what about if you avoid the, the problem of the multiplicity of cameras and image takers and instead go to a, a larger choke point, go to the platforms and say, all right, if you have a major social media platform and you allow users to upload content, it's going to have to bear certain… Watermark certain digital hallmarks of authenticity and provenance. Um, if in theory you could you could go to a handful of entities and capture a lot of where information flows. Yeah. Um, the interesting question is, would they do that? Would would they be willing to do it? And would it come? Would that technology and that filtering come with the kind of disruption, delay, and inefficiency that might alter the user experience in a somewhat negative way, and therefore drive people away from? Uh, that particular platform into some other platform some some new thing that may not even exist yet that 's easier and it 's just a little bit freer actually
0: I'm, i 'm going to be more optimistic I realize that 's not in character but uh, uh, <laughs> if you're if you 're YouTube. I uh, you don't want to be known as a place where a lot of fake videos that produce riots uh, are uh, displayed um, and you don't have to uh, there doesn't have to be a law. It's bad for your brand in the long run. Uh, and you don't even have to say uh, you can't upload it if you have a, some dumb old camera or we don't recognize the format by which you're authenticating your, your data. Uh, they could simply say, well, fine, we're not going to monetize it. Or we're going to have a um, a warning label saying this is uh, uh, unauthenticated and therefore needs to be taken with a grain of salt. Uh, There's a variety of things that you can do if you're a platform um, that aren't uh, legal, but which that aren't, aren't driven by law, but which have a pretty substantial impact on this kind of thing.
1: There's also a definitional challenge though. so if you're I agree with you the YouTube and, and anyone who wants to have a brand that's known for uh, reliability is going to be interested in this to some point. Um, there's all sorts of perfectly legitimate manipulation of video that may go on, both for you know clarity or for stylistic effect or because it's political satire. And, of course, there's going to be margin cases where it's a bit hard to draw that line. And I, I think I know from listening to past episodes of this very show that you know, you've know you got a concern, I think, for good reason, that sometimes uh, there's a political inflection to how that sort of filtering and screening might take place. And this could become a new avenue in which that issue becomes a difficult one for the big social media companies.
0: Yeah. So I'm, I'm engaged. I've engaged in self-help. Um, I've gone out and gotten a small tattoo in a uh, – uh, rarely seen part of my body so that uh, anybody who takes the video of me uh, participating in uh, unusual or inappropriate acts said better know where that uh, tattoo is.
1: We need a Twitter poll to vote on what people think do Twitter t- his hidden tattoo is where it is and whose image is it
0: I think that's right I think that's right can I can can I can I come up with something more uh entertaining than George Solch's uh, uh tattoo <laughs> uh, he, he famously had a Princeton tiger on his butt I uh,
1: uh, <laughs> I know you can do that I'm I, sure you've I, already <laughs> one that
0: So the other the other self-help uh thing that I think is Uh, attractive and potentially part of the solution is life-logging, essentially. Uh, Keeping a record, uh, and frankly, I think politicians are going to have to start doing this soon, keeping a record of where you are and what you do, um, and so that you can say, I wasn't there and I can prove it. Uh, And that uh, there are a lot of reasons why that uh, might fail in certain circumstances, but my guess is that that's where we're, uh, people are going to go just as a matter of self-protection.
1: Yeah, that's. We, we argue that. We think that the thing that's most likely to happen for people for whom this is, for whom reputational sabotage is an especially uh, acute concern, so politicians, people running for office, uh, major public figures of various kinds, anyone who's got a fragile reputation, uh either all the time you know if you're a celebrity perhaps it's all the time um if you're a chief of police perhaps it's all the time or at least at acute moments so during an election you're going to see more and more life logging now a lot of this already kind of takes place uh, whenever there's a controversial event on campus you can bet that there's people with cameras up from the beginning both because you know whichever side of the controversy they might be on everyone's trying to record things because everyone wants to have their record of what's going on, and maybe one side's trying to inflect that record a little bit to make it look like things happen the other way, and the other side is hoping to capture a more honest record. Uh, you'll see an expansion of that, and that could take all sorts of forms, and we can look to uh, police body cams as a as a sort of a variant of the technology or an application that you might then begin to see with some of these figures. And you might see employers insisting upon it for certain categories of employees, and in fact, police body cams is an example of that from a certain point of view, although it's not the employer necessarily, in that case, insistent upon it. Um, And so that that could well be the solution. You can even imagine, and we anticipate there will be uh, commercial service providers that try to establish an especially trustworthy brand as the repository for this type of content. And if they intersect uh, technologically with the social media platforms in the right sort of way, they might be able to set up a system in which there's very quick and rapid uh, basically alibi checking it's yeah. reliable. And goes on, uh, but we also really worry about what this means for a world in which you increasingly have sort of omnipresent surveillance, just because all the people around you are life logging everything happening to them.
0: Yeah, I well, I think you know. Look, uh, the, 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 we've crossed that Rubicon, and it's just a question of uh, uh, when we realize it. Uh, in fact, uh, we're we're being life logged as we speak. If you have ever gone to uh, get the uh, uh, description and maps of things that uh, Google knows about you. If you if you are an Android user, they know you know where you were every minute of the day for the last five years, uh, and they can show you uh, on a map. Uh,
1: and and now, and now they can start charging for the service. Exactly, once they realize it's actually a benefit.
0: <laughs> Persuading people that they're getting a great benefit from it. Uh, uh, well, and actually, what I suspect is going to happen is a lot of people are going to want to have this under their control, pull it back, uh, encrypt it, sign it, uh, put it in the blockchain because everything has to go in the blockchain uh, and and then be able to record capture it, but only on their terms, only if they agree. And of course, they'll then then there'll be questions about when you can override the encryption with a, a search warrant, um, which will be entertaining Exactly. To Parp- deal with Carpenter
1: there. questions, yes. for sure.
0: Yes. Uh, uh, at which point you, you kind of say, well, okay, maybe there's not a third-party doctrine, but for God's sake, there ought to be a first-party doctrine. You know, you recorded it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I want to borrow from the National Security Law Podcast, uh, the idea of frivolity uh, at the end. Yes. Uh, um, first, you should tell us if there's some event coming up. That you, you, you did have a great event with Senator Rubio talking about deep fakes. Uh, um, any, any other events where you or Danielle are going to be uh, holding forth on these topics?
1: Uh, we're going to give a talk uh, – so I'm going to talk for uh, in some student audiences in, at Hastings uh, in September and also for the – I think it's the World Affairs Council out there. You can get the video of our talk last week with Senator Rubio at Heritage on the Heritage site, which uh, – I want to put in a plug for Klon Kitchen, who's now running uh, the new tech policy program at Heritage. And I think it's a fascinating and important move for Heritage and, and similar institutions to start engaging more in tech policy. So uh, do I get a free mug if you invite Klon on the yes, show? Yes, yes, you I will.
0: Uh, you absolutely will. You. And, and I, I, I'll put in a, a plug. I listen to that uh, as though it were a podcast. And if you are not familiar with HuffDuff and HuffDuff Video you need to, to, to Google those things and put their little uh, uh, icons in your uh, bookmark uh, uh, column because uh, I- any video or at least any YouTube video uh, and many other videos can just be turned into an um, uh, audio file and oh, sent, nice. sent to your podcast aggregator.
1: Uh, it's uh, Huff Duff. Huff Duff. And then Yeah, to that's great. It. I've actually long wanted that service. So that's good to hear. Yes. The, the other thing that I'll be working on is, uh, you know, the fall semester is looming, and as you know, we've got a sort of an emerging cybersecurity program at UT that includes me and Matt Tate, uh, Pone, all the things who ah, teaches yeah. with us here, um, and I'm continuing to fine tune my course, which is about the legal and institutional policy aspects of cybersecurity, and Matt does the mirror image, and he teaches the technology to the law and policy students, so we'll be really busy with that coming up soon.
0: Yeah, that's terrific. He's great. Uh, uh, So, frivolity – I was reportedly out of the podcast because I was lost in the wilderness last uh, uh, week, and it is true. I went to Aspen for the security forum and a homeland security (laughs) meeting, uh, uh, but I walked. Uh, It started at uh, Snowmass and hiked into Snowmass Lake and then over about a 12,500-foot pass and down into Aspen Uh, uh, using a whole bunch of new technology that I'm I'm becoming enthusiastic about. I'm sort of finally catching up to the ultralight revolution. So instead of a tent, I just took a bivy sack uh, and a poncho that I wore when it rained and set up as a kind of uh, tarp when uh, when I made camp Uh, uh, and a uh, uh, little metal stove where you burn wood. Uh, which really I have to say appeals to me because you can set it up in a completely denuded campsite and people have been pulling down trees all around you and chopping them up. uh, And the, Stuff they leave behind, the little bits of wood that they leave behind are exactly the right size for sticking into this tiny oh, stove. So you can uh, build a uh, wood fire in a stove uh, uh, and feel as though you're uh, uh, ecologically pure at the same time. So that's my frivolity that's for the week. Yeah. It's,
1: uh, well, let me tell you that you're bringing me back to uh, hiking in Big Bend uh, when I was younger, just out of college. Big group of us, we were such idiots most of us packed almost no food we did bring drinks but we, and, and it wasn't water and but one guy one guy had a little field stove and he had some dehydrated spaghetti with meatballs and he poured some of our scarce remaining water into it and cooked this thing up while the rest of us were splitting a pop tart and it was nearly the Donner Party. I mean, when he started <laughs> cooking that thing. So, a lesson learned there. Yeah.
0: Well, and I and I will say, I, I one time in Yellowstone uh, with this stove, uh, um, uh, my son and I uh, cooked an entire meal using um, a, a deer poop, uh, which. Burnt- <laughs> Burned great. Smelled like grass burning. It was terrific. Uh, so you can do oh, all fantastic. kinds of stuff. Yes. All right. I knew uh, there was
1: a green inside you.
0: <laughs> all right. Thanks to Bobby Chesney. Uh, thanks also to Maury Chank, Nick Weaver, and Pat Cannaday for joining me. This has been Episode 227 of the Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. Uh, I should probably do a few Credits and uh, notes. Uh, um, a, you heard, Bobby. Uh, if you suggest successfully that we invite somebody to the podcast, you can get a highly coveted cyberlaw podcast mug. Uh, uh, send those suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe uh, Watch us. I've started. You know. Irregularly uh, putting up topics that I think we might cover the next Monday on uh, uh, Twitter uh, and LinkedIn and Facebook, just asking people for comments, and we're getting comments, and uh, I actually find the feedback kind of useful. So watch for at Stuart Baker on Twitter, and my LinkedIn account and Facebook accounts are similarly obvious. Uh, uh, please. Send us some ratings. Uh, go on uh, iTunes and Google Play and Stitcher and give us a review. That's how we get uh, noticed. Um, upcoming, I you know coming up uh, with enthusiasm is our August hiatus. Uh, uh, there's some suggestion that we ought to put out favorite interviews from the past. So uh, I'll. I'll be glad to take comments on that idea. Uh, you, of course, you don't have to listen to them, so maybe we'll just do it and see if anybody downloads them. Uh, but before we go on hiatus, Noah, Noah Phillips, who's an FTC commissioner, formerly a Cornyn aide and formerly a Steptoe uh, associate uh, who worked with me, very bright guy, will be on next week talking about a uh, host, host of – FTC uh, issues, including privacy and the European Union. Uh, show credits, uh, Laurie Paul and Christy Jorge are our uh, producers. Doug Pickett is our audio engineer. Michael Beaver is our intern. And I'm Stuart Baker, your host. We hope you'll join us again next week for the last time in four weeks uh, as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and governance.